Good morning and welcome to Life Church. Like Luke said, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I had no idea I had to preach a world-changing message. So <laughs> they told me a solid B plus was fine. So I'm just kidding. It's my honor to be able to speak this weekend. And um, it, this summer, we're doing something that's kind of fun. We get to the different campus pastors are rotating around a bit and preaching at each other's campuses. So last Sunday, I got to preach at the Appleton campus and be with them. And uh, you're going to hear some different communicators throughout the month. But it's an honor to be able to speak uh, this weekend. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to James chapter 4. I will get there in, in just a little bit. But, you know, as a kid, one of the, like, triggers that I had as a kid, so to speak, is if somebody asked me to prove it. Like, it's just, it did something. It's, it, if you ever seen Back to the Future, when Michael J. Fox, when he's confronted with the words, are you chicken? You know, he, he kind of snaps and he's just like, no, I'm not chicken. And so that's, that's me when somebody says, prove it to me. You know, and usually involved an athletic endeavor of some sort, somebody was saying like, you're not faster than me, then, you know, prove it. And it's like, well, we can do that right now. That's what I love about sports is they're very objective. Like there's not a lot of subjectivity to it. That's why I don't like, uh, like I don't understand wrestling, you know, cause I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not linear in, in, in thought process. So uh, a couple times I remember as a kid specifically, it, both of them involved throwing something. Um, anyway, this is how I got into trouble as a kid. And so it was gym class, I was probably, I think I was in fourth grade, and it was gym class, and so everybody gets ready in the locker room and then meets in the gym, and so I was one of the, I was always eager, ready to go for gym, that was the highlight of the day, and so I, I get to the gym, and it's just me and a couple of friends before anyone else had gotten there yet, and there's, we're in the middle of this gym by ourselves, and there's a green marker in the middle of the gym, just a little weird, you know, why is there, who is using a green marker in the middle of the gym? So I pick it up and one of my friends says, I bet you can't throw that across the gym, which that's the trigger that right there. I'm like, yes, I can. And I will prove it to you right now. And so I back up and I give it a chuck and I'm like, I, I not only want to prove I can hit that wall on the other side of the gym, I want to hit it so high up that it just obliterates the thought that I couldn't do that. Or, you know, I'm like, I need, I need to prove it. And so I do that. What I didn't calculate was that I guess markers explode sometimes when you throw them against walls. And so I threw this marker and it burst. To this day, the number of green dots on the gym floor was astounding. I mean, it, it was thousands of green dots all over the gym floor. My friends and I, we looked at each other and kind of made a visual pact that we're going to walk away from this one. We're, let's just kind of, I don't know what happened, you know, it was one of those types of, I'm not proud of that, but that is what happened. So another, the same age range, um, I was asking my sister about this and she's, I think it was fourth, fifth grade, something like that. We're stand, me and my sister, she's two years older than me, we're standing in our front yard and we had landscaping rocks that were like chunks of granite, like large chunks of granite uh, rock. And she, I, I just had one in my hand, you know, whatever, we'd throw them around, whatever. And she says, I bet you can't hit me right here with one of those. <laughs> About 30 feet away, you know, and me to John right there. And, and I say, oh, yes, I can. And, but I said, Lisa, you're just going to move as soon as I throw it. Like, that's not, like, there's got to be something that she's not telling me because she was really tricky. The older sister, they'd always try to manipulate. I could tell you stories about that. I said, you're just going to move. She's like, I promise I will stand right here. You will not hit me with that rock. I'm like, 
I'm doing the calculus on this thinking, I don't even know if I'll get in that much trouble because uh, she's egging me on. So I'm like, sure enough, I wind up and give it a heave. And David and Goliath, uh, I mean, just right in the forehead. She starts crying. I mean, big goose egg. My dad had caught part of the conversation where she was egging me on to do this. And so we got an equal amounts of trouble, which to me was a win. I was like, <laughs> and to this day, I, I've said to her, I'm like, were you that courageous and brave or are your reflexes really that bad? And we decided that it's a reflex thing. She didn't get as much of the athletic genes. But anyway, so it, uh, I didn't get in that much trouble. But it's this mentality of if you tell me I can't do something, bring it on. I'm going to prove it. We live in a, in a society right now specifically that I think is a prove it type of society. Like you can't just say you believe something. You can't say you stand for something. You got to prove it. And there's some good to that. There's also some bad to that that can happen sometimes. Uh, how many people in here would say you're a Bucks fan? Okay, that play last night. Drew Holiday, what, like he threw up that alley-oop. I was like, there's no way. And that was just incredible. Anyway, Bucks and six. Did you guys hear that story? This is a way sidetrack rabbit trail. There's a, the, the kid who predicted that the, that the Bucks would beat the Suns in six games like 20 years ago or something like that this year. Like that, that's, anyway, that's pretty crazy. So Bucks and six feels like it's destined to happen. But you say you're a Bucks fan, but let me ask you a follow-up question to that. How many of you have been to the Deer District during a Bucks game? Okay, so we actually do have a few legit fans here. Because that's the rite of passage. Like, if you haven't done that, you're, you're a fan, but are you a true fan, right? That's, that's really, you're more of a casual fan. Uh, Aaron Rodgers. That'll suck the life right out of a room when you say that right now. Aaron Rodgers uh, is asking the Packers to prove it right now. Like, hey, if you want me, prove it. Give me a contract, fire that guy, you know, give me a new player. Like, I don't know what we're asking for here, but like, prove it that you want me to be your quarterback. Take it a step further, a little more personal. Uh, during the last 16, 17 months, we've all had to be involved. Uh, when it comes to the question of, do you love your neighbor? Do you love those around you? Do you love your coworkers? Do you care about them? All of that. There's things that you need to do to Prove it. It's not enough to say that you, do, you know, you need to prove it. And there's some good, and I'm not going to get into all of that today, but I'm here to say there's been, we've lived that over the last 16 months of there being a tension of are you really, do you really care, do you really love, and, and all of that. Uh, right now in, in, in workplaces, there's times where you're asked to, um, you know, you got to sign this document. You got to do this to prove that you, uh, you know, align with these ideologies or whatever it is. And so there, it, it used to, there's, there's a lot going on in our society right now, but it comes down to, you need to prove it. You can't just say one thing, you need to prove. And whatever side of whatever argument, whether it's Vikings, Packers, or whatever, anything in between, or a political issue or whatever, you need to be on your side and you need to prove that you are on your, you know, like it's, it's this, there's some animosity behind it. It seems like everything is dividing into, everything divides us into two groups and you need to prove that you are truly a part of the group that you belong to. I'm not here to talk about any hot button issues or anything like that. Take a deep breath. But there's this prove it mentality. Scripture's no different. Scripture, uh, uh, all throughout the gospel, it talks about that we are to prove that we are a Christ follower. It's not enough to say that you believe in God, 
that it's something that should be proven by the way you live your life. Uh, you look at uh, Jesus specifically a couple of different times. He talks about, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, there will be evidence. You will prove that you love me by keeping my commandments. He talks about how uh, there's a, a good tree will bear good fruit and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. There will be evidence of the quality of the tree. And he's talking about us as Christ followers. There will be evidence by the fruit it produces. There will be proof that the tree is a good tree. You look at Paul all throughout the New Testament, he writes about how Christ followers should be set apart. They're, the way a Christ follower lives their life and conducts themselves on this side of eternity it makes or breaks whether or not they truly are following Christ or not. I mean, he, I could go into a lot of different examples, but scripture puts us to the test. It says, hey, you need to prove that you're a Christ follower. James chapter four is one of those passages where it, it, it is very direct um, it's very uh, sometimes uncomfortable. I will say that the end of James chapter four, uh, that we're gonna read today, is incredibly encouraging. So th this isn't gonna be a message you're gonna walk away from uh, not being encouraged because there's an incredible encouragement through it. But it is direct saying, hey, you need to prove that you really are a Christ follower. Now, before we read it, one quick thing I wanted to mention is that, and I think this is incredibly important, is that I'm not talking about earning your salvation. Uh, I'm not talking about you need to do things in order to earn grace because you can't earn grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That's Jesus taking your place on the cross at Calvary. There's nothing you can do to earn that. That's something you can't repay. That, that, it's something that you can receive and accept. But I'm not talking about that today. But what I am talking about is proving your salvation. And that's what James is talking about here. There will be evidence of your salvation by the way you live your life. And so that's what we're talking about here today. James chapter four, starting in verse one. It's gonna be on the screen too. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, just a quick parenthetical thought right there. A lot of the, uh, the tensions in our world right now, a lot of them come back to us not inviting God into the conversation. And that's, that's the first few verses here. That he's, he's saying that's why we quarrel and fight is because God's not the, the center of the conversation. Verse three, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You can see this chasm between the two sides, so to speak. Verse five, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And here's the verse eight. This is, this is the good news. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, James is, is real direct. He pulls no punches in this passage of scripture. It's challenging. He's specifically talking to Christ followers. James was not meant to be read by people who did not profess faith in Jesus. So it, it wasn't directed at non-Christ. It was directed specifically 
at Christ followers. Much of Paul's writings were also directed directly at Christ followers. So it's, it's not meant to be read in a, in a mixed setting. It's meant to be read specifically to Christ followers. And I think that's why they get a little more animated, a little more like, hey, it's kind of like uh, a, a father or mother with their kids. I'm going to ramp it up a little bit because these are my kids. I, I can level with you a little bit more like, hey, we need to be I'm not going to go, you know, have that conversation with somebody else's kids, but I'll have that conversation uh, with my kids. That's what James is doing here. And he's saying, hey, there's a, there's a whole lot of people that believe in God. There's a lot of people who profess to be Christ followers. But if it's not evidenced by your lifestyle, are you really a Christ follower? That's kind of what he's getting at. He's calling for Christ followers to prove it. James talks about three different ways in this passage that we can prove that we are a Christ follower. And I, 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 at first I had these points listed out in kind of almost like a checklist form. Like are we do but it's really, it's not a checklist. This is not like if I do these three, three things, I'm good. Like that's not, I, I would call them tensions to manage. Because they're never going to be, there's never going to be this arrival point of, ah, I'm good. Everything is, is, is right because on this side of eternity, there will never hit that, that, that point. It, it, it will continually be a growing process, becoming more like Jesus, maturing in our faith in Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christ follower for one year or 80 years, you are growing in your relationship with Jesus. So these are tensions to manage as a Christ follower. The first one, if you're taking notes, is this. It's, there's a character tension. James describes this chasm between man's character and God's character. And he says there's this massive gap between the two of them. And Christ's followers are in the middle of that trying to wrestle with the whole thing. Romans chapter 8 talks a lot about this struggle between flesh, you know, the things of this world and things of God. And there's this, this wrestling, this internal struggle that we did an entire series on that chapter uh, called Struggle. There's this, it's almost like a tug of war match that's going on. That's what James is describing here when it comes to somebody's character. He says man's character is full of bitter envy, selfish ambition, lying, evil desires, fighting, wrong motives, slander, materialism, judgment. He says that's man's default. That's the character of man. And he contrasts that with God's character. He says God's character, and I'm just listing out things that he describes throughout this passage. God's character is peaceful and considerate and submissive and merciful, full of good deeds and sincere. It's the polar opposite of each other. And I sometimes ask, why is there such a gap between man's default and God's character? Like, why is there such a gap? Wasn't man created in the image of God? Therefore, like, why would there be such a gap between the two? And it's really, it's all, a lot of things in scriptures explain in Genesis chapter two, the fall of man when, when, when Adam and Eve gave way to sin, it ushered in a sinful nature into all of mankind. And it ushered in this tension between the two that man's character from that point forward was drawn towards the default was more like, hey, I'm attracted to doing these things over here. It's much more difficult to do these things over here. Our man's sinful nature says that cheating is okay and lying is okay and gossip is okay and adultery is okay. Like man's, man's sinful nature wants to justify sin uh, uh, in it of ourselves. 
That's man's default. Man's character says, do what feels right. You see that a lot in the world that we live. Do what feels right. Whatever feels right, whatever is your truth. You know, you hear that a lot too. There's not a standard. There's not maybe that's wrong for you. That's right for you. This is wrong for me. That, that's right for me. You know, like it's, there's no, there's a moving target of morality. That's what man's sinful nature looks like. But when we put our faith in Christ, the Bible talks about that we become a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, any man who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. There's a reprogramming that happens in that moment. It, it, perfection is not attained in that moment. It's not like you will never have a sinful thought the rest of your, that's not the point. The point is the, the man's sinful nature becomes a whole lot less appealing. And there's a, there's a longing for God's character. That's what you desire when you're in, when you are a new creation, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. God will reprogram your character. So the question for us today is, how, how do I know? How's my character? How am I doing in this area? In this chasm between man's character and God's character, where am I? How am I navigating that? And I could give you a lot of different scriptures that we could look at and, and advice of things that you could do. The, the best advice for the sake of time would be simply uh, to look at Psalm chapter 139. David constantly, uh, and this would be something maybe even read on your own time, but Psalm 139, David describes how we know how our character is doing. He says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? It was just simply saying, God, I, I, I may have blind spots. Where am I missing it? Where am I doing well? Where am I missing it? Where am and just having that real, honest conversation with God. That's what David did. That, the light, David was a very flawed man. I mean, David had, I mean, he killed a man. He had adultery. I mean, he had all sorts of issues, but he was considered a man after God's own heart. And I think it's because he was real, raw, and honest with God. It's not because he had everything all figured out. When's the last time you had that conversation with God? Psalm 139. Say, God, how's my character? Is there anything I'm missing? Any, any area I need to grow in? Any area where I have sin that maybe I, maybe I see, maybe sometimes I don't see, maybe it's a blind spot. I believe God will reveal your character to you. He, this should be the regular rhythm of a Christ follower is saying, God, how am I doing? There's a character tension. The second tension uh, James writes about is that there's a spiritual tension. They're very similar, but a little different. There's a spiritual tension. And the question here is, are you connected more to the world or connected to God? Psalm, or excuse me, James chapter four, verse four says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's saying you can't be of the world and of God at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. It, it, best way I know how to describe it, this would be like a Packer fan wearing a Bears jersey, right? Like it doesn't work. It's just they're, they're mutually exclusive. They're on different sides. It's, that's what James is describing. Hey, you can't have both of these worlds. You need to pick. You're going to have to get on that side or this side. You can't. It, and Revelation chapter 3 says that there's lukewarm is somewhere in the middle, and, he, and God wants to spit you out of his mouth because of it. He's like, I don't want that. I Pick which way. But you can't have both. There's a spiritual Tensions. How do I know if I'm more connected to God or more connected to the world? How do I know which world I'm living more often in? 
uh, there's a list I came across that I'm just going to rattle off. It's just 10 things that describe somebody who's more connected to the world than connected to God. And maybe just take a moment to take inventory of yourself. Do any of these things describe you? People who are more connected to the world than connected to God, they often crave acceptance more uh, from people more than acceptance from God. They look for people to validate them, not for God to validate them. Second thing, they rarely share their faith in Christ. I mean, a simple question today can be, when's the last time I shared my faith in Christ? Number three, they do whatever it takes to alleviate their guilt. Number four, they think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. They make all their decisions based on the here and now rather than heaven. Number five, they gauge their morality by comparing to other people. Number six, they want to be saved from the penalty of sin without changing their lifestyle. Number seven, they only turn to God when they're in a bind. Eight, they give, they give whenever it doesn't hinder their standard of living. Number nine, there's not much that differentiates them from the rest of the world. And number 10, they want the benefits of Christ without conforming to who he is. And if any of these statements describe you, I'm not here to beat you up, but I am here to say James is, is, is putting out a pretty stern warning. I'm just saying, hey, just be careful that you can't live in both worlds. And here's what he says in verses one through three, and I'll just bullet point it, but there's some things specifically that he says to people who try to live in both worlds. He says, you will fight. That's what causes fights. You will fight, you will kill, you will covet, and you will have unanswered prayer. I mean, that's pretty serious. That, that, that's some serious warning that, Paul, that, that, that James is saying, hey, just be careful. You cannot live in both worlds. That will catch up to you. There's a tension that must be managed between those two worlds as a Christ follower. The last tension that James writes about is that there's a relational tension. There's a relational tension. Now, I would say that this is the most important one, and this is one I want to spend just, just a, a few minutes as we wrap up here on. Because the prior two, uh, the tensions that we talked about, the character tension, spiritual tension, uh, they all hinge on this one. That if we're doing this one right, I believe the other two are going to follow. And I think that's why James sets it up this way where he says, let me just give you one verse that kind of summarizes the whole thing. <laughs> and this is, this is what we focus on as Christ followers. Because the first two, if, if you read those first two, the, the, the character tension and spiritual tension, if you, if you looked at those without looking at the last one, it's almost like, like you can muster up the energy kind of a thing to just do these things and check these boxes and you're gonna be good. But he says, if you miss this third one, none of that really matters. And so he says, he's saying, find your strength to do the first two in this last one. And he closes with verse eight. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It's one of the most astounding passages of scripture in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Uh, not because there's not other verses that are like it. There's lots of verses just like this one. But that the character of God is one that if we take one step towards him, that he meets us the rest of the way. That's not true in other religions. Like, that's something that's unique to the, to, to the one true God, the God that we serve. That's something that's unique and reserved for him and him, him alone. Because that really is the character of God. 
And I think so often, you know, people get, like, if I just do all these things and check these boxes and, and you know, that I'm going to be good with God and he's going to be good with me and, and, and he's saying, yeah, that's all fine, whatever. But do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Last month, Amanda and I celebrated 15 years of marriage and, and I remember hearing, yeah, thank you. I, I, <laughs> that used to sound so old to me. Now I'm like, that's 15 years. That's like a blip on the radar, right? But I know Amanda so much better today than I did 15 years ago. Like, I, I can walk into a room and know exactly what's going on, what she's thinking, what's, like, not in a, but like, I can have a pretty good sense of reading her now that 15 years ago I didn't have that, right? I, because we're in a growing relationship, I'm getting to know her better every day. And I, I, 15 years from now, I hope I'm saying the same exact thing, that I know her so much better than I do today because that's what a growing, loving relationship looks like. So it is in our relationship with God that, and I'm not trying to liken it, it's not exactly the same type of relationship, but it, the, the concept is similar, that we grow in our relationship with God, and that every day we should, we should know him a little bit more. We should, as we read scripture, we know a little bit more about the character of God. As we go through experiences and put our faith to the, to the test, so to speak, we understand God's character a little bit more. As we have conversations with others about him, you know, we reveal a little bit more. As we go to church and we learn a little bit more, like we, we get a little bit more insight into the character of who God is. Not that it's some big mystery, but that there's nuance. There's, okay, I, I know a little bit more now that I've walked through that. I understand a little bit more of what David is writing about when he says that, or I, I I've gone through that. I, I kind of get it a little bit more now. See, there's those who believe in God but don't know him. I think that represents a big chunk of people, honestly. I mean, statistically, 94% of Americans say they believe in God and 47% say they go to church. Now, I'm not trying to equate one to the, but I'm saying that's a, that's a big chasm between the two. There's a lot of people who believe in God that, that don't go to church at all. And so there's, like, I would, I would venture to say, probably maybe don't have a relationship with it. I, I don't know, I'm not here to pass judgment. But the Bible has a lot to say about people who believe in God and don't know him don't have a relationship with him. In fact, uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's a pretty straightforward conversation. There's those who believe in God and know him, but they don't know him well. Maybe they're new in their faith and they're learning and getting there, but the, the relationship is still new. Or maybe they've just gotten casual in the relationship. And it's just, it's, there's not a lot of growth. It's kind of, hey, I, I, I go to God when I need something, but other than that, we're good. You know, it's one of those types of things. But then there's this last group of people, and this is what James is writing about that we should strive for. Those who believe in God and know him intimately. They believe in God and they know him intimately. What we call God is a reflection of how close we are to him. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 14, it says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and, we, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, which would be a very intimate thing to say to God. That means like daddy, that's what that's saying. Abba, Father, we're sons and daughters of Christ. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What do you call God? Is it distant? There's people uh, that call me Mr. Coggins, right? They probably don't know me super well if you're calling me Mr. Coggins, you know, and that's okay. Maybe you're a telemarketer calling me Mr. Maybe you say my last name, you know, Mr. Goggins. Then I know you really don't know me, right? But then there's others that call me Pastor Ryan, and they know me a little bit more because there's a, there's a, they know what I do. There's a relationship there. There's some that call me Ryan, and they know me a little bit better, right? There's some that call me Coggins, right? Like, you know, in high school, you'd all call each other by each other's last names or whatever. You know, Pastor Aaron calls me Coggins, and, but it's, a, it's endearing because it's like we have more relationship with each other, so we know each other well. Hey, Coggins, what are you doing for lunch? You know, it's that kind of thing. And they know me a little bit more. I'm going to get a little vulnerable here, but some call me Rue, R-O-O. It's a nickname that I had when I was a little kid. So if anyone calls me Rue, they are an aunt or an uncle or a sibling. That's pretty much, those are the, or a cousin. Those are, they sometimes call me by that nickname. You're not allowed to. Uh, (laughs) There's some that call me honey. Two people, my mom and my wife. So don't think you're in that group. Somebody after the last service said, what's the over-under on how many times people are going to call you honey today? And I set it at two and a half. We already hit two, so we could break that real easy. But, uh, and then there's some, four to be exact, that call me dad, right? And that's a totally different level of intimacy and relationship. Because the they would never call me Mr. Coggins, right? Like that, they're, they're way beyond that. There's, a, there's an intimacy, there's a relationship there. God is saying that you have that same relationship to him, that you are a son or a daughter of the most high God and that there's an intimacy in relationship um, just by being a son and daughter of God. It's not something that's earned, but it's something that just by being a son or daughter. And so the question is, am I reflecting that? Or am I, is it distant? Is it like, oh, heavenly God, and you know, it, it, where it's this real distant sounding thing, or is there this intimacy of saying, no, it's my dad. It's my heavenly father. How close are you to God is what James is driving at here. You're the only one that can answer that question, but I do know that God wants intimacy with you. He wants relationship with you. He wants closeness with you. And he says that all we have to do is come near to him. I love that about God. That is a a character trait of God that is extremely compassionate. It's a pattern in scripture, this this character of God. It's not something, this isn't James 4.8, it's not a one-off verse. This is mentioned time and time again throughout scripture. I'll give you a couple examples. Revelation chapter three, verse 17 says that I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Like I'm, I'm just right here. I'm not gonna bust in the door, but if you open the door, man, let's have food. Let's, let's eat, let's, let's be together. Let's have relationship together. There's another story in the New Testament. It's a story of the prodigal son. And I think uh, is one of the most revealing stories in all of scripture about the character of God, of who he is. 
It's a very famous story. Many of you know it, but the story goes something like this, that the, the, the son goes out and wastes all of the money that he gets his inheritance early from his dad, says, I just want your money and I'm gonna go do my thing. And he goes and he wastes all the money and with wild living and just a, you know, all sorts of stuff, gets himself into trouble, runs out of money, finally like kind of hits rock bottom, says, I don't have anywhere else to go. I, I, I guess I'll just go home and see if I can get a job with my dad. There's no, in that moment when he makes that decision to go home, there's no, the Bible doesn't say he was so sorry and remorseful and just, you know, just felt terrible about what he had. It just said he just went home to get a job, basically. He goes home. He knows I'm probably going to have to, you know, apologize and go through, hey, you know, I'm going to have to smooth things over a little bit. But the father's response is extremely revealing about the God that we serve. The, the Bible says that while he was still a long way off, the father ran to him. Now, I don't know if you do this, but when I read scripture, I, like, I visualize the story. And so I'll tell you what it looks like to me. Maybe this will be what it looks like to you. I don't know. But ha- how many of you have seen uh, Little House on the Prairie? Okay, you know the opening scene where they're running down the hill, you know, whatever. That's what I visualize, okay? So I visualize a dad sitting on the porch in a rocking chair, right? And, and just kind of waiting for his son. And then he sees his son pop up over the hill and immediately runs off after him. That's the God that we serve. And I put myself in the shoes of the father sometimes and I think like, could I respond that way if one of my kids ran off like that? How would I respond? And do this often in scripture, just trying to realize how flawed I am as a human. But I have to admit, if I'm just to be perfectly honest, I'd sit on that porch and I'd be waiting and I'd be excited when my kid popped up over the hill. But I think I may just wait a little bit longer, make them come to me a little bit further. There would certainly be like, hey, we need to talk this out a little bit. Like, what happened there? Like, we need to, if you're going to be here, there's going to be some ground rules and you know, we're going to have to talk this through a little bit. And that's what man's character would do. Like, that's, that's what a lesser father would do. That's what I think I would do. But not this father. This father doesn't do any of that. He doesn't put, he doesn't put any guidelines down. I mean, his, his brother gets mad about that. You know, you remember that the second brother is like, what on earth? I've done nothing but just stay here the whole time. And And his father's like, hey, you don't understand. This son was lost and is now found. And so we have to celebrate. And this story is, it's it's a parable, but it's one that I think is is meant to describe the, the compassion and the grace of the father in heaven. Of saying, hey, I don't care what you've done. I'm just glad that you're home and I will run towards you. That's the God that we serve. We serve a God that's, uh, sometimes I think we think about God in terms of like he's Santa Claus. Like he's making his list and checking it twice, looking to see who's naughty and nice. And he's kind of sitting there and just like, okay, who's, okay, you've been pretty good over here. You know, like, and that's not, that is, that's a perversion of the gospel when you think of God in those terms. That's not the God that we serve. It says, come near to me and I will come near to you. As soon as I see my son, I'm gonna run towards my son, the question for us today is, are we seeking God? 
Because there is a prerequisite in all of this. In every instance of God's character being one that runs to us, every time it says that we seek him first. We take one baby step. We take one initiation. He won't just force himself, but we just take one step and then he does all the rest. He, come, he, he, just, he runs the rest of the way. Are we seeking God? Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will find me. The question is, am I seeking God? Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you are a God who runs to us. You are, you are a God that when we take one step towards you, when we draw close to you, even just an inch, that you draw near to us, that you wrap your arms around us. And we thank you that that is the character of God and we strive for that character. So today we wanna take a moment as we, before we go our separate ways, we just take a moment to declare our dependency on you. Take a moment of just, just as David said, that search my heart, oh God, See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I pray right now that we would have an intimate relationship with you, that we would not just say that we believe in Jesus, that we would just say that we're Christ's followers, but that we would prove it, that we'd back it up by the way we live our life. We'd back it up by the intimacy that we have with you. And that we truly be on a dad basis with you, that we would be able to call you that because that's what you are. That's the desire of your heart is that we have that relationship. We thank you for it today. It's in your name we pray, amen.